Hi, I'm Warren Davies, the Unbreakable Farmer, and welcome to the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast, where I have the privilege to be joined by some amazing people I get to meet in my travels and share their stories and wisdom with you. After all, one of the most powerful assets of any community is the shared wisdom, and the best way to share that wisdom is through storytelling. So sit back and I hope you enjoy today's episode. G'day and welcome back to the podcast. Um, today's guest is a social worker um, who's worked across um, the mental health field uh, in, in, in many situations and, and I met her in Rochester um, as part of um, all the work that she was doing in flood recovery in, in Rochester in Northern Victoria and, and, um, and now she's moved on to another role working with um, kids in in secondary school, which is um, something else is very interesting, a very interesting topic that I, I like to or I want to delve into with her. But please welcome to Beyond the Back Paddock podcast, Bonnie Pappas. G'day, Bonnie. How are you going today? Hello. Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no, this is uh, this is great. Bonnie and I um, connected um, during during uh, the early stages of the flood recovery in, in Rochester and um, really loved the work that she was doing. And I thought it would be really good to get you on and, and, and chat about all things to do with, um, you know, mental health, what you see in your in your roles and, and, and what you saw during that flood recovery. And um, it would make for interesting conversation. But first, so just can you just introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about you, I uh, know mm-hmm. you're a mum and all that sort of stuff. You've got all those yeah. other all those other hats that you wear. Um, but, yeah, introduce yourself. Thank you. So, yes, I'm Bonnie. I'm a, I'm a social worker, currently working towards my mental health accreditation. So that will allow me to have, you know, my Medicare provider number. So any clients that I take on externally, they'll be able to get the rebate. So, yeah, a bit of a process, I suppose. But um, yeah, worked in mental health since I graduated from my social work course. And it's it's been across a number of fields, whether it's family violence or community outreach. And where I met you, Warren, in flood recovery, that was probably the most diverse, I think, role that I've had. And then since that contract ended, I've ended up in education, the education system, which comes with a whole other, I think, layer of challenges when you're working with young people in in the, you know, field of mental health. And, yeah, number one job, I'm a mum. I have a two-year-old little girl. And I think working in the secondary school system has made me a little nervous, to be honest, about, you know, what's, What's it going to look like when my two-year-old's at this age? It's remarkable how things have changed in the last 12 years since I've graduated. You know, it's crazy. It's a, it's amazing when you look back and I know, you know, with our kids and you look at the things that kids get up to today are mm. probably no different to what you got up to or what I got up to, but there, there's just mm-hmm. a more complex um, layer of ways that they communicate, which... Yeah. Well, along with that creates a lot of other challenges. But just going back to um, your education, so what made mm-hmm. you choose social work? What was that? What was the mm-hmm. um, what was the, um, the the instigating factor that made you want to go down that pathway? I always say when people ask me how I got into social work, I always say that social work chose me. So I actually worked really hard throughout my VCE to become a teacher and that was my end goal. That's all I could see myself doing was primary school teaching actually and I did it. I got into ACU and I did the first two years of that course to then halfway through I just wasn't meshing with me. I was probably a bit disheartened I think. I remember going on all my placements and just being a, it was like a magnet connection to the kids in the classrooms that I was completing my placement in, the kids that needed that little bit of extra attention and TLC for whatever reason, whether or not it was learning difficulties, 
some level of diversity with the foster care system. I would just be naturally drawn to, drawn to those kids and at the same time those kids would end up finding me and it was frustrating to try and work out. I, I think teachers are absolute superstars because I would get so fixated on all of these individual needs and when it would come to planning lessons to meet the curriculum needs it it would just you you just it's impossible to cater to to everything uh and so I took a year off actually because oh my god like I don't want to be a teacher anymore that was the plan there was nothing else that I had really considered um and so I took a year off and I think I just traveled that, yeah, I, I got a job at Maccas actually to fund the travel because <laughs> I, I had no idea what what I was doing. And I did. I went overseas about three or four times and travelled around and I had someone had suggested social work because I was speaking about the love that I found in the teaching, the things that I was drawn to. Someone suggested social work. I wasn't I didn't know about it, so I wasn't too keen, but I applied. I deferred, I got accepted, I deferred it until the following year and I stayed in teaching and I deferred it and I just thought, problem for future Bonnie. So, yeah, when I went, it was my last overseas trip to Hawaii actually and my mum and dad took took my sister and I over there and we went to a college football game and if you've been to Hawaii, it's it's America, everything's grand and big, there's a lot of luxury, a lot of shopping and I was loving it. But we went to a college football game and we caught the local bus and the bus took us a couple of blocks out of the main Waikiki township and it was honestly those videos that you see of LA, like of Skid Row with all the tents and cardboard boxes and all these people living in poverty, like it blew my mind that a block away from this amazing hotel that I was staying in, this is how people were living and I remember going to the game and I, it was great, but I just remember being so unable to shake that feeling of just like injustice that I saw. It was, it was probably the first time something hit me that deep and then we left Hawaii, I think, like the following day or two days after that. And on the flight home, I was, that's when my decision was made. That's it. I'm going to accept my position into the social work course. And the rest is history. It's I got amazing. a master's. I went on to get my master's. <laughs> it's, it's amazing you say that. Um, it was interesting. I was in um, Brisbane not so long mm. ago doing doing a conference and, you know, um, I was booked through a speaker bureau. I, you know, got picked up from the airport, dropped off at a, at a, mm. at a hotel. That's where the conference was. But. I got there late in the afternoon. I thought I'd go for a walk, get something to eat. And I was walking back to the hotel and and I looked across the road um, from the hotel and here's me. It was very conflicting. It was a very conflicting thing because mm. I was there to talk about mental health. I look across the road and there mm. was um, three suit vans and a shower van and about 150 people would have been lined up at that. And I'm, mm. I felt really guilty. That yes. I was here, yeah. I was living this privileged lifestyle that you know mm. I feel uncomfortable about anyway. Like uh, you know, if yeah. I can get it, all that attempt, yeah. like that, and there's these people, and it was just a real, I suppose, coming from a regional town, you don't see that mm. quite as you know in your face. But here it was yeah. in the in the middle of Brisbane, and you got people lined up, and they just go, "Well, how's that happening?" and what do we need to do about this? So I understand mm. why that would have been an epiphany for you at that stage. So yeah. you said you got your master's. So where mm-hmm. did, where did that where did that lead you? So I did it the way that I went to La Trobe in Bendigo actually. And so that was probably my first real taste of of country living, I suppose. And and that's probably I mean being to Rochester now and beyond, it's probably city, <laughs> if <laughs> anything now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I did a dual degree. The way that they had organised at Latrobe was it was a Bachelor of Human Services and a Master of Social Work. 
Um, I did a quite extensive placement in that at Ballarat Base Hospital. Yeah. And that was fantastic. My supervisor there was to this day just within the within my experience and within the field, one of my favorite people. I learned so much from her and her attitude and approach to just not even social work, but to people and how to be a good person within a workplace, how to be a good person in general. Communication is the key to everything. Um, But in Ballarat, because that, again, even though it's like to people, I suppose, in inner city Melbourne and suburbs, Ballarat is the country, but it's it's a satellite city of itself, isn't yeah, it? Really, it's a region. It's a regional yeah. city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's that again was probably one of the first experiences of meeting a lot of people, like a lot of farmers and a lot of people from the country. And when I realised that the barriers, the barriers that just leaving remotely creates in its in itself, that perhaps when you live in the suburbs, you're not aware of. Um, scheduling of appointments and and just I suppose this the the social psychosocial stuff that really has impact on people's health outcomes how they manage their health and that's just health in general when I started getting exposed to mental health and the barriers that are in play um, for mental wellness that really took my interest and I remember coming home and speaking to my now husband about my day-to-day life at Ballarat Hospital, and it would just blow my mind, you know. So what were some of those barriers that you identified um, while you were doing that? Mm. Just the distance that people would have to travel. Like I, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, like three hours, four hours for a chemo treatment, um, you know, the services, the outreach services, what would people living close to Ballarat, they'd have a weekly appointment, um, but very rarely would an organisation have the means to send a professional, whether it's an orthopaedic surgeon or a, a nurse, like a, um, what are they called? Either if people in palliative care, like if they were yep. getting their palliative treatment in the home, that, that actually wasn't an option for people, for farmers that, that wanted, that would prefer to pass at home or to receive that care at home because that meet, those means wouldn't actually be able to get over there. Yeah, so, yeah, just that distance. And, and were there mm-hmm. any particular barriers around, like the, uh, in the mental health side of it, what other barriers oh. did you see? Well, not only I would say like service accessibility was a, a massive one, similar to health, but I think there are a lot more um, sociological barriers perhaps in terms of how it was seen in communities. You, the psychologist, if, if little communities were lucky enough to have a psychologist in town, that psychologist went to school with everyone's mum, everyone's dad, you know, um, the mental health and allied health professionals that would normally cater to a mental health scenario were, were not their identity didn't stop at their profession where I think that's a luxury like Melbourne is massive very coincidences happen yes but very rarely do you know the person who's treating you they're somewhat of a stranger and you have that level of um, privacy and, and dignity that that you feel you uphold whereas when that's removed and you know that it is stigmatizing mental health and that vulnerability that you have to put forward when you're in that state of just not feeling your best to look up and see mum's best friend, (laughs) mum's sister's friend from high school. Like it just really deterred people away from seeking the help that they needed. And that's one of the things with with small towns and, and, you know, and we're lucky if if people, you know, do their – um, you know their degree and their education or whatever and then come back and mm. want to work in their communities that's you know we're fortunate for that to happen but it also comes with that mm. you know that yes. added baggage of you know yeah yeah they you might know their mum and dad or their grandfathers or their family mm. comes from you know and it's interesting when you start making those connections sometimes you don't realize the connections and then yeah that could yeah. be I could see that being a real barrier 
um, again, mm-hmm. you know, having those conversations because, as you said, <laughs> when you're in that situation, you, you need to be really vulnerable to get the best outcomes. And, yeah, when mm-hmm. <laughs> when you look up and you see that person's, you know, yeah. knows a lot about your history anyway, it's, Definitely. it ma- makes it really hard. And I think as well, when it's particularly with farmers, I found that because of whether it's location or just the hand they've been dealt, they're fiercely independent. They're so used to doing things by themselves and managing things by themselves because they have to. For whatever reason, it's it's what that's just what you do to get by. Yeah. So if they're not feeling a hundred percent, it's that men- mentality probably sticks with them because they don't know how to they have never had that ability to palm it off to someone else or to unload it's dealing with it at the time to get on with it because there's a whole list of other things that they have to do yeah and that and that's Mm. one of the things that you know you try and explain that and it's great to hear your perspective as in mm. an outside perspective or or coming from a, a city background like a yeah. you know not from a regional town the to actually yeah <laughs> from the birds to actually recognize <laughs> recognize that is something you know it's a it's a reality and you know mm. we always say that you know rural communities in general but particularly blokes and farmers or you know farming um people off farms are really stoic and they get on with it but that is true that's because Mm. generally you're dealing with stuff on your own and and you have to come up with solutions and when it comes to mental health well you know they always say that a farmer's you know is a jack of all trades a master of none and there's probably got mm. 180 skills or whatever that that figure is you know they're an accountant and a mechanic and everything else but they're not really a psychologist or a social mm. worker or a mental health specialist at the same time so you can't really deal yeah. with your own own problems so mm-hmm. um you talked about um that experience so where where to after you know, that experience where did you had you've talked a bit about um, yeah you yeah. talked a bit about um like domestic violence and stuff like that which mm. is also a prevalent um thing in our society these days um mm-hmm. where did that yes. experience come from so after uni my first position as a fully qualified social worker was with um I would say an all-encompassing mental health outreach service. So it, they just basically had to submit a referral to this organisation. The, the client or the recipient of the service had to submit this referral via themselves or a doctor or another allied health professional, and it was for psychosocial support. So that covered everything, whatever was, I mean, you have your own umbra- like mental health is such an umbrella term and there are so many different causes and reasons why someone is experiencing poor mental health at any given time. So in that position across my caseload, I had people that were experiencing housing issues, homelessness. (laughs) Excuse me, I haven't spoken this much in so long. Normally, normally I have people in front of me telling the story. <laughs> I don't really say a whole lot. Um, sorry. So, yeah, in that position, it was a really good opportunity to look across the broad spectrum of the things that impact someone's mental well-being. Um, yeah, what did I mention? Housing, homelessness, domestic violence. I think I dabbled in like postpartum, postpartum depression and what the barriers that women experience. <clears throat> uh, those were probably the main ones at the time. Hmm. Yeah. Even just financial hardships, everything yeah. in between. Yeah, so that's when I, and and I know that you've seen this, but my unbreakable wheel of well-being and I talk about all those spokes mm. in your wheel and some of those are, you know, relationships, finances, you know, community yeah. engagement, all that sort of thing all make, you know, they all affect your well-being and in turn affect your mental health. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it's very interesting, and I, and I reckon I'll ask you this now um, mm-hmm. because it's a question I get asked all the time and, at, mm. and, and in your role and the people you see. So what are some of the signs that you look for, for apart from mm-hmm. the conversation side of your job? What, what are some of the signs that you look for if someone is struggling with their with their mental health? What are the, some of the signs? Because it's a, it's a question I get asked all the time and it is a yeah. how long's a piece of string, but you know, I explain Definitely. Su- some of my signs, which were, you know, anger and frustration and sadness and, you mm. know, isolation and all that sort of stuff. So what are some of the signs that you look for as a professional um, when yeah. you know, you're well, – not so much assessing someone, but having that conversation to, you know, try and work out where they're at? That's a good question. I think the first thing I would say is that even with the qualifications and I'm so sorry, the tickle's there now. (laughs) We're going to (laughs) struggle with that, with the rest of the chat, I reckon. But even with the qualification and being in the field that I am doing the job that I do, I think baseline be a human like just just be a decent human and I think a lot of it's quite intuitive yeah so even if if you have the that niggling feeling of just something being off or you see something that you think like that just doesn't it's not landing right with me so I think just just um relying on your instinct as as a human being like when you're talking to a friend or an acquaintance those tats, little signs that niggling feeling that you get within you that just makes you think that they're not okay and whether it's the other person just saying something like oh yeah I'm fine and they want to brush over speaking about themselves I think that's that's an up that's a good sign maybe not like a drastic one but definitely one to make you go that was weird and then changes in behaviour, like you stated, outbursts of a particular emotion, whether it's anger, frustration, just things that that make them seem off. A sad blank look on their face. And I think we're so programmed these days to not want to be intrusive on someone's business or to be annoying. And so sometimes we mask ourselves and we hold ourselves back from asking those questions and and just checking in because we don't want to be bothersome but I just think we need to forget about that (laughs) we need to just don't worry about being annoying if someone tells you to buzz off or then just do that yeah buzz off but at least you can walk away going I I at least they know that I cared enough to ask are you okay today yeah. I, I just don't think that's never going to be the first step. Yeah, it's um, because it, it's a very interesting question because you know, obviously, you know, you get you get asked a fair bit of what should I be looking for? What are those things? And I always mm. say, and it's hard to even say what questions to ask, but ask open ended questions. Yeah, but yes, those definitely. questions are. Are situational as well so it's no use me going well here's a script and then go and ask those questions because mm-hmm. um they can be different in any situation but yeah and and i all and i'm glad that you said that because some of the the subtle signs are the some of the yeah. ones that just make those mental notes in your head that that wasn't right so next time i see him i'll keep that note in the back of my head and yeah. even if it's you know Last time I seen Bonnie, she was immaculately yeah. dressed. Her hair was done. She had all her makeup. And the next time I see her, she was in a dressing gown and she come to a meeting and, it, you know, just, that's an extreme example. But No, but, but it, those little changes of behaviour are huge. Yeah, it's just the, those mm-hmm. subtle signs that we need to pick up on that, you know, not so much that you have to act on, but they're the ones that you make the mental notes of. And then, you know, yeah. if you notice that's happening on a regular basis or it's increasing, mm. well, that's when, you know, you need to have that courage to have that conversation with someone. Mm. I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think you said an important, an important point when you spoke about withdrawal or withdrawal, like um, in so many circumstances, <clears throat> on the other end, it's so easy for us to take things personally. So if people don't text back 
and and I'm so guilty of that sometimes especially in the work that I do some I would be lying if I said that I don't take things on like I I'm a person first and foremost some days are heavier than others if I have a big day speaking with students or when I was in Rochi if I met with multiple families in a day that were without a home like I would drive home some days in in tears in in absolute tears being feeling so helpless um but you just I like I didn't have the energy to to text back to people like who were being so lovely to reach out to ask like what am I what are you doing on the weekend or whatever they were saying I would not on purpose freeze them out but just just not have the capacity in that moment to get back to them and then it's just I forget yeah so I think when people withdraw rather than get really and I had great people around me so no one ever did this to me but it, it is very easy for it to happen I think to when you don't get a reply from someone even if you're asking them if they're okay taking it personally and just not bothering anymore because they're not getting back to you yeah understanding that perhaps like they just need space but but keep them in your mind and just keep asking keep touching base it's never not going to be appreciated on the other person's end I don't think so Mm. what you just said makes Bonnie the special person that she is because if you weren't taking some of this on, I don't think you'd be able to do the job as good as what you do because that's mm. who, what makes you you. But it is, um, you know, sometimes taking on that load is is not much fun and if mm-hmm. you're a little bit like me, a bit of an empath and you, you start collecting, start collecting yeah. these stories and you've got to be able to process them um, because some mm-hmm. of the stuff that you do here is pretty heavy and, you know, yeah. and, and I want to lead into that with the, you know, when we first met up, you were working in flood recovery in Rochester. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, most people or people that are listening to this outside that mm-hmm. region will have only seen the news. It's a bit mm-hmm. like people, you know, can't even imagine what happened in Lismore in New South Wales or any of those yeah. places or in towns that were really impacted by bushfire. That Unless you were actually in that region and that you don't really know. I've mm. I, I seen the impact firsthand and it was huge and it was bigger than the news stories. And, and you worked at the coalface for a, for a, a fair while. Um, what did mm. you see and what were the major challenges in that recovery period post, um, mm. you know, the October floods? What were the biggest challenges that you saw the people going through? There were so many. There were so many and when I when you asked me to come on the podcast and when we were having those initial discussions it was I was so keen to come on and have a chat because I'm passionate about mental health in general as today got closer and I knew that I had to speak about Rochester I really it not stumped me but I just it's important to me to do Rochester justice and to speak as best as I can about the impact that these floods and probably the response to the community from all angles in a way that really just speaks true to all the locals' experience. I think when I think of the the most common hardship that I heard from people was resident, like the idea of residents feeling that they were not being heard that that everyone just wanted a connection that was unavailable to them because the people that they were so used to connecting with were in the same boat as them and were unable to provide that listening ear or to physically just be there because their home was flooded and they were living in different towns and far away or because they were going through their own mental health struggles that they had withdrew. And there were lots of friendship groups taking that on personally or feeling like a really crappy friend because they weren't reaching out to their friends like they normally would. Um, And it was that idea in every sense of the word of community being the 
backbone of of who we are but I, I don't think I'm until it's taken away as 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 people we actually take that for granted it, we don't think about it until our community is not there anymore and that's what that's probably what really struck home with me in Rochester like you know I underestimated the power of community and connection and it really made me reflect on if that was me and that was my family in in this town and it was my town that this happened to I would I would be the same you know and we're all so busy we don't we don't think about that no and and once it mm. like I said once it goes off the news no one yeah, not that you're not in people's yeah. thoughts, but it's not front of <clears throat> mind. And this was going on on a daily no. basis. And and for a community yeah. like Rochester, they were so um, fr- because of the flood, so dislocated. Like so, there was people yes. living everywhere. Um, no one yeah. was living in their homes straight after the floods. Like slowly now, twelve months down the track, slowly but surely, people are starting to move back into their homes. But there's still people that aren't in their community and you know mm. you know you take for example the the people that yeah. were in the um, aged care facility are still spread out they're not back and they won't be back there mm. for for a while and that was their safe space and you know and the same with the you know the mums and dads with small kids and they were living either in caravans or tents and had you know, portable toilets and that there's so much disruption and disconnection yeah. and, and that was amazing, uh, like a major thing that, you know, I noticed and for a community like Rochester to, that are a bit like farmers, being mm. a rural community, they're used to leaning on each other and mm. everyone was going through the same thing. Yeah, and I think another thing that I found interesting, there were, there were so many things that I have taken away from Rochi, honestly, but a lot of the residents there, they had been through so many previous natural disasters, whether it was floods from, I think, that were there floods in the 70s? Am I remembering yeah, that correctly? 2011 and, yeah, the, so they And 2011, the most recent, yeah. Yeah, and, yep. and, and droughts. And, and, yeah. yeah, everything in between. And so, you know, just say you have a four-generation family, the oldest generation was still quite traumatised from all these other things that had happened to them. And it's just, it's it's a, a hard go at it, you know, and it, it wasn't the first and probably won't be the last, but there were frustrations in there because I think the most recent flood was 2011 and there were still aspects of recovery or uh preventative measures that I think as a community people were wanting and asking for and expecting that they weren't there and the devastation of these floods um I think that were the uh, the impacts the, the pillars of the community so people within the community that were quite well known and that uh, were at the forefront of things they internalized the responsibility of reco- recovery or lack of resources or whatever it was that they saw as the biggest issue, they internalised it as their own doing (laughs) or something that they were unable to do good enough for their community. So people were feeling really guilty and then, you know, you just like everyone that I spoke to and, and, again, I was working in the sector of small business support specifically yeah. Um, business owners were feeling responsible for not being able to open their shop because people needed <laughs> their goods and services and they felt the pressure to open quickly or when they did, they were um, a bit disappointed because people were unable to walk through the doors and spend money because everyone was so financially behind from the recovery process. But then again, they felt guilty because they understood that and it was just this cycle of of just where does it end, you know? It was any way that people in recovery were trying to look at it, it was just always someone has it worse, I could have done this better. It's just that mind game of what what could be different and how can I make it happen? Yeah, and that's... 
I talk mm. about, like, you know, I talk about in my story, you know, being affected by a flood and, and I say, like, to to qualify that it doesn't matter how big or small your challenge is or how it's affected you, it's how it affects you. Like, it doesn't mm. matter, you know, you, you, you know cause I, I use the example that I was standing in a, in a conference room last year sharing my flood story to a group of mm. 400 horticulturalists and 100 of those horticulturalists were from the Lockyer Valley. Um, mm. Their flood entailed getting rescued off the roof with a helicopter Mine was yeah. only waist deep, and it, so it doesn't make my flood any less, though, because no. the way it impacted me. And that, and I think that's one of the things in recovery is, you know, especially when you're in a stoic community, you know, oh, I'm okay, mm. help the person next to me. And yeah. yet that's the person that's saying that probably needs just as much help as what the other people do. Well, and going back to what I said before about when you were asking me what the signs were, that. telltale signs of people may needing that TLC for whatever reason. Rochester working there probably really cemented that for me because it was the pillars of the community that quite like, you know, care, like in a caring nature said, everybody else but me, I'm fine, I've got this, I'm good. And the ones that were actually referring their friends and family to me in being persistent with them and maintaining that open communication with them eventually I would get them in a time and space where they would open up and they would tell me about how they're not coping and they tell me about their struggles and they were probably the most severely affected And I would get in my car and I'd start my two-hour drive home and think I'm so glad that I was a ball breaker with that one because I was just so persistent and at the end of it they just really needed that support. But if, if I don't think I made myself as accessible as I was, they wouldn't have gotten it. And that's something that I, that I probably took on again, that I internalised for myself as, as maybe something that I could have, yeah, you just, that's what I mean. Like I'm not privy, like in, not, um, it's going to impact me like it impacts everybody else, yeah. even with the knowledge that yeah. I have. Yeah. We're all susceptible to those, that inner dialogue. Yeah. And I think you've made a, a, a great point there, as far as being persistent and um if you and it's you know something that i share um about having these conversations you know you can mm. ask someone how they're traveling they'll say they're okay but if you're really concerned about that person's well-being mm. making yourself available knowing let that person know that mm. they've got your support and be persistent in that conversation eventually they'll realize that you're not just being a sticky nose or yeah. you know, you, you're, you're actually got their best interests at heart and all you want to do is have a conversation with them and you're there yeah. for them. And I think that's mm. really important. That's a, I think the, a, a step that gets missed a fair bit with with yeah. these conversations is, you know, you ask someone if they're okay, you're really concerned about them, they say they're okay and you go, fine, and that's yeah. it. Mm. But if you are concerned, you need to, you know, like you did, leave yourself accessible so if they want to have that chat they can have that chat and they know deep down that you've got their best interests at heart so they're mm. open, willing more willing to open up um yeah. to you so yeah. um through that that work that that you did um mm. you know as was there like a, when you say it was wide and varied and and because the impact was so uh, across the board did you notice any any trends or anything that was coming out as the recovery progressed? Mm. Were there trends that started to appear that, you know, that maybe someone that's listening to this that works in the same field can prepare for for the, for the next disaster? What were mm. some of the trends that you noticed or some of the ups and downs as the recovery progressed? Yeah, I think <clears throat> time... People just need time and people digest events like this uh, 
at different rates and at different speeds and in different ways. Um, and it's honestly just just respecting that fact and giving people the time and space that they need. When that's done, and if you continue to uh, and not be pushy, and it's 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 hard because you, you do need to find that balance. But I think just showing up and being there was at times the only thing that I could do. You know, like, yes, I was there for counselling services and to support small business owners and their, their family and their staff. Uh, but not everyone was ready to talk to me. And at times, like, I felt like I was selling light bulbs, like, hi, I'm a counsellor provided to you. Do you want to tell me about how you're feeling today? That doesn't land well with people, especially people who have so many things to check off their list. So that was, I felt icky doing that. So I knew that approach wasn't going to work. So very quickly, I prioritised just being a human first and walking into cafes or (coughs) shops and asking people like, how's your day been? How are you going? Oh, yeah, you've got children. I've got a little baby. And just making myself just as vulnerable as I'm expecting them to be when they're ready to open up with me. They need to know what I'm about and who I am and what's important to me because whether it's insurance companies or services that come and go for that immediate crisis support, people that have their guards up, you know, they've, they've been hurt, they've had their whole life upside down. They, they're not going to trust people straight away. And, and to be honest, I completely respect that. So for me, I would say just prioritise on, just prioritise just being seen as a human yourself first. And unless you truly care and, and give a shit, don't bother because people that are in those, um, I suppose, those spots of true vulnerability they're going to know that you're just there for the paycheck or because your boss told you to be there and they're not going to want to bar. And you're not, and to be honest, you're not going to be able to do your job properly anyway. Yeah. No, it's, um, Mm. they're, um, (laughs) great takeaways with anyone that's dealing with people that have, um, that have encountered a, mm. a, a dramatic challenge in their life that, you know, sometimes, yeah, everyone, they've got their guard up and it's not necessarily. Yeah, understandably. You, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's, and you need to build that rapport. That's the thing. You know, that's another yeah. key thing about, you know, the conversations around mental health, even if they're your best friend, sometimes you've got to build that yeah. rapport and, and, and so that conversation will flow. <clears throat> yep, uh, Definitely. So taking all your 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 learnings away from Rochester, you moved into mm. the secondary um, school space as I did. <laughs> and that's a, another mm-hmm. whole different ball game. And and one of the things that I'm really interested in, especially around youth mental health. So what are the things mm. that you've learnt since you've started in that role? Well, can I just say it's it's very ironic that I do work in a secondary school because I hated high school myself. I couldn't wait to get out of there. The only thing that kept me in there was the fact that I wanted to be a teacher, honestly. Um, And to work in a secondary school, and I work in all girls education at the minute. And so when I accepted the position, when I thought of mental health, I thought "Mm, friendship issues, eating disorders, generalised anxiety. Like I probably really stigmatised what mental health would look like in this role myself. Yeah. Full transparency. Since being here, oh, so much more than that. Yes, those those are things that I deal with day to day and that I speak with my students about. Um, but the kids of today have so much to deal with that, you know, even myself, I left high school 12 years ago I think, I, but even in whatever time it's been, I have no idea. But but the, the stuff, I know, I'm losing my mind, but the stuff that these kids have to go through and they have to consider, it's just no wonder. I, I think we have, we're in the middle of a mental health crisis. I think 
COVID and I know everyone is so over talking about COVID, but how that had impact on the youth of today is just out like ridiculous, out of this world in so many ways, social, emotional, mental, physical, that their health and development, it's it's staggered completely, I think. Yeah. So you, so you say things have changed. So for the mums and dads <laughs> that are that are out there mm. that are that are struggling with that teenage yeah. child at the moment, what are some of the trends that you're seeing come through your door? Um, what are the, some of the really concerning mm. things? Um, what are the the mm-hmm. challenges? Yeah. So I think honestly, where to begin? I think. The first, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of, of social media. And you said something really interesting at the start of us speaking today where, you know, the teenage years, what they're about, what you get up to has not changed. It's the prime years of risk-taking behaviour and that is just what it is. It, it was like that, it is like that and will continue to be like that. But the things that have changed, which I think makes things a bit harder for this generation in particular, are your social media things. Like you can't do anything without it being posted all over social media. If someone was bullying you at school back in the day, you'd leave school and the bully at school, right? You'd come home, you'd either be able to talk to mum and dad about it or you didn't but you'd be able to sit in your bedroom and just escape it where social media, you can't escape it. Even just technology in general, your number gets shared around, you get text messages, you get phone calls and yeah, okay, you can take your child's phone away. But half the time, if your child doesn't tell you, kids are so tough these days. They just, they, they think, they're so used to that environment and they're so used to social media having that on it and and phones um, that they don't a lot of the time see it as an issue. They just think it'll be fine and they don't talk to mum and dad about it. I think as well another big part, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad way at all because I'm a working parent myself, right, and I understand the challenges, but I think... Back then, it was rare or on the the unlikely side to have two working parents. Normally, you would have mum or dad, but mainly mum at home, right? These days, things are so busy. Like very rarely do you have two parents, one parent at home. At the minute, we have two parents working all the time finances are they're everywhere like the world that we live in these days is so hard to make payments make you know balance balance your life and I think kids are getting caught up when they need that communication and that support at home the most and then it's absolutely not parents fault at all like I said I'm a working parent and this is what I worry about with my own like how, like where are we going with this, you know, because everyone's so busy and we have our own um, we have our own responsibilities to meet that that kids almost, they, they don't want to add to that pressure. They see that mum and dad are really busy. That's probably a trend. They see mum and dad are really busy. They sense mum and dad are really stressed about finances and they don't want to add their problems into the mix. They don't want to cause an argument between mum and dad. They don't want to be told like, oh, it's fine, you know, so they don't speak about anything and they keep it really private, still on their phones and on the social media platforms until that's when they see the overflow at school that, you know, it's reached that really just unacceptable level of, of behaviour and just nastiness, Yeah, I think. Yeah, that was a bit of a rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, I know, and that's and, it, and it's exactly true and that's just part of the world. Like, um, mm. you know, I had growing up my mum and dad owned small businesses, so 
I had access mm. to both my parents, even though they were busy and both working, but we normally lived behind the milk bar or whatever. And, yeah. you know, and you, you had access, but now people, you know, are working, you know, ridiculous hours in different places. There's a lot of commuting, particularly in Melbourne. Um, everyone's really, yeah. everyone's really busy. So even in, like you said, you're at an all girls school. Um, mm. Obviously, the boys aren't out of the picture, but they're not at school, so that removes yeah. one of those things. But so, is there any other challenges that you mm. see the students going through? That you know, just these are things yeah. that people can pick up from if they if you've got a, a kid. Mm. And one of the other things I want you to talk about too is um, what to do if you are noticing that your yeah. teenager is struggling. And you're having trouble trying to break through yeah. that barrier. What 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 are your suggestions there as well? I think just communication in general. I think today's students that I speak to, they struggle with articulating themselves. I think they're so used to typing text messages, and I feel a part of that anti-technology movement. <laughs> Technology is great in so many ways, but we've just become so used to social media and having that as a part of that even in when I was in uni to get a group assignment done we would do it on Facebook messenger and to organize it so we're just it's so ingrained into to how we interact that the kids today that's just their norm and so when it comes to actually having one-on-one conversations with other students you know their peers friends whatever with teachers and especially with their parents, I just I just don't think those skills are there like they used to be. They how they would normally and naturally develop through time. I just don't think that's they have the opportunity to really exercise that that that, that language as a skill anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I think in terms of the advice that I would give to parents, the amount of girls that I have sit in my office and acknowledge that I used to be really close to mom or dad. And I really wish I could talk to them about this, but I don't want to bother them or I don't know how to say what I want to say. And a lot of the time I know the parents and I think, oh, my gosh, like they want to talk to you too. They're feeling the same way. They're, you know, they don't know, they they don't want to upset you or they're worried about you. Um, And I know like it's teenage years. You're going to have your arguments. You're going to have your clashes. But I just think it's, it's like I said, with Rochester or in mental health in general, it just comes down to communication, keeping that those lines of communication open at all times, trying to make it a judgment-free space because that's what we fear as teenagers, that, that judgment that's coming in on the, the other end. You don't want to be rejected You don't want to, you know, have any negative feelings had by the people that you care about towards yourself. So just really taking the boxing gloves off at times, regulating yourself as well and understanding why, like what is it about what's happening, like what's triggering you. I I think that's a really big one as well, putting yourself in the mindset before you have these conversations that, can get really icky and frustrating. So picking your time of the conversations, like for me, I know if I walk through the door, whether my husband or my mom, if I've come home from work and I I'm had my day, that is not a good time to have my conversation. Like my head is so full, I need to <laughs> chill out before I have any convers- like serious conversations or just some days conversations in general. Yep. You know, being mindful of your approach, I think, is another really good tip. Yeah, they, that's really good mm. advice to, um, you know, because, yeah, <laughs> there, there is sometimes a lot of conflict, especially bringing up teenagers, and it's, um, yeah, you know, that that's a really good tip, you know, to take the boxing gloves off and just, you know, and, and I suppose going yeah. back to what you said about being in Rochester as well, is, mm. it's being, being present, being available, and keeping yeah. those conversations and, and and obviously and I'm pretty sure every kid out there knows that their mum and dad somewhere Absolutely. shape or yeah. form care for them. But yes. but yeah. letting 
uh, but understanding that you know sometimes that might not you know connect and and leaving yourself there and available for them to come and talk to you is a really really good point and i think mums and dads into your kids eyes you hang the moon and they see you as fully functioning adults who are holding down jobs and who who do everything for them who run their household so as well in some ways i think that creates an understanding for them as almost unrelatable as as mum and dad being that they won't understand and i remember feeling that way but i think um and even with the students that come in i'm always super honest about my past experiences and again it comes back to that being vulnerable like not expecting vulnerability unless you're able to be vulnerable yourself which um Brene Brown everyone knows Brene Brown she talks about the idea of vulnerability so well but I it's it it is what it is it's I think the first and foremost thing is that your kids aren't going to open up to you if they think that you're this perfect person which fantastic if they've got that viewpoint of you you've you've done something very well you've been what you're there to be a a great parent right but the minute that I think they're able to see that humanistic side of you are like oh I didn't know that you felt like that (laughs) it's it makes them feel more relatable I think yeah and I think Mm. that and that I think that goes across anywhere like yeah vulnerability is a power and um and, so and vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So if you're showing that there, you know, and I talk about that in my presentations that, you know, by sharing my story, hopefully yeah. that gives other people permission to share theirs. And and that's the same mm. thing. So you might have to share a story yeah. of your own to to open up that mm-hmm. conversation and that's um Yeah. And that and that's okay. And be prepared to do that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, mm-hmm. I'm conscious of time and I've taken up lots of yours yeah. and but I know that, you know, <laughs> from our coffee catch ups in Rochi, I know that we've probably been mm-hmm. sitting here for a, a multi episode version of, of the <laughs> yeah. um, podcast. So I'll um I'll have to get you back on again for your perspectives because I really um respect and um value your view of the world bonnie and i so it's been a pleasure That's having so nice. you on but i've got i feel like i've just word vomited to you for the last hour i feel really bad actually well that's great because <laughs> I, I think the first email that i sent you and said would you like all the message that i sent you would you like to come on you go well what would i talk about but i think you've done a pretty good job <laughs> <laughs> could talk underwater <laughs> that's it so and that's why you're good at what you do so i've got a few questions to ask you yep. at the end and um i ask most guests but you've alluded to this a little bit but what are bonnie's self-care strategies what do you do to help mm. look after you it's um yes i have my go-tos absolutely i um I'm such a hyperactive person. Honestly, one of the girls that I work with said to me the other day, it's you walk around like you have like fire jets connected to your shoes. Like, and I bounce off the walls. I am here, there, and everywhere. So for me, I have so much energy that that the gym or being active is something that I really do for myself to get rid of that extra energy that I just absolutely don't need. Uh, sometimes that doesn't happen. Most of the time at the minute, that doesn't happen. Um, And so little things that I do, uh, my showers of a night time, like I really take a moment to just imagine the water washing everything that does not belong to me off. Um, I try and eat as healthy as I possibly can. And on really bad days, I indulge in all the chocolate that I need to feel better. And whether or not that's the healthiest self-care approach, no idea, probably not. Um, but full disclaimer, and when I tell my girls to self-care, fill up your cup, I suck at it. I really, it's something that I really have to work on. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because it's so commercialised these days, self-care, but it's really hard. Again, in, in the life that we have to lead, working kids being a parent being a friend whatever it's hard to find that balance isn't it mm. and i think you've 
alluded to a very important point by saying those self-care strategies that you said about going to the gym but that's not happening at the moment and then no and when you have chocolate that might be the right thing but you've got to do what's right for you I think yeah. and, and and acknowledging that even though you're not going to the gym that's okay um, yeah. is really important and not have that internal dialogue where you're building yourself up about not doing that or you oh I shouldn't have eaten that whole block of chocolate mm. or whatever that's okay yeah. as long as it's looking after you and, and, you know, you can burn the chocolate off the next day when you're, bouncing, just, when you're bouncing off the walls. Seriously, honestly. And I know that that physical activity works best for me because when I don't take care of myself, it impacts my sleep. It's the cycle. It's what happens. And so I know that that's the best thing. But just some day, it just like... It just doesn't happen, whether it's because my husband doesn't get home from work all time, I'm unorganised, it just doesn't happen. So there are other things that I do. Listening to music, like when I'm putting my makeup on in the morning, I the first thing that like before TV goes on, three upbeat songs, like just three songs that make me feel good in the background while I'm doing my makeup. Those little things to just add to my cup, fill up, my cup a little bit throughout the day those staggered approaches are just as important yeah that's a that's a great Mm -hmm. tip um who inspires you um I would definitely say my I'm a big family person so my family absolutely but I would have to say people like yourself that I've met along the way who share their own stories with me and their own mental health stuff Uh, my students that I speak to every day that, you know, despite everything, keeps on keeping on, like every day that that is what keeps me in the job that I do and keeps that passion going for me, absolutely. I take that you've got I me, mean it. You've got me speechless. No, um, uh, and that's, yeah, and that is, uh, I think, that's what inspires me, like the people that I get to talk to yeah. as well. It's really important. It's true. Mm-hmm. What, what about a favourite book? Favourite book, again, I love reading but I just don't do it. I just oh. don't do it. So a book that I've actually finished in my life was The Diary of Anne Frank and as a history buff, like that was that was a very big book for me to read. Yeah, I loved it. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll throw you a, a, another random question then, seeing you said yeah. you had three songs that you might play in the morning when you're yeah. putting your makeup on. What what would they be? Yeah. They change depending on what mood I wake up on. At the minute, uh, Feathered Indians by Tyler Childers, I think it is. I think that's a really good one. Where the Wild Things Are by Luke Combs. Love it. And what's another one? Um Oh, it's by, I think, Starting Over by Chris Stapleton. Right. I think that's another one. Right. I just have, like, my, yeah, my go-tos. Your go-tos, <laughs> good. Um, and last question, and uh, this is an interesting question for most of the guests on yes. the podcast. Um so if you could invite five people and knowing you, Bonnie, that you are a family person, this excludes no family allowed. This excludes family, yes. and they, they, this person could be with us still or not. So, yeah. could, um, and you could have met them or not. But who would the five people that you would invite around for for dinner? Yeah, um, who would you like to have at your table? I take this question way too seriously. I do. Like, I think it's going to happen. Um. I think I would approach it as a as a girls' dinner, I reckon, yeah. and I'd want it to be funny, but I'd want to know that the people around me share the same values, you know. I'd yeah. want fun, but that they're my people, you know. Yeah. So I think um, Brene Brown. Yeah. Because, oh, legend. Because, just because. Someone. <laughs> Just she just she's a social worker, the way that she articulates herself. She's just that no bullshit approach, which I love. Yeah. Love, love. Uh pink, because I think she's the same. And she um yeah, just little things that I 
heard her say before in interviews, I just think she's really good at being vulnerable. So yeah. I think we'd have great chats. And definitely take would take no bullshit either. <laughs> exactly. Do you, do you see the theme? Do you see the theme that I've got going here? Yeah. I think I'd have oh, Melissa McCarthy. She's so funny. Again, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, who else? Drew Barrymore. Love Drew Barrymore. Yeah. She's fun. And you know what? I'm going to throw one in there, Princess Diana, because I have so many questions for her, to be honest. <laughs> so that's a bit of a random one. But they, they'd be, that would be my dinner party, I think. Oh, well, you, you put the, the social workers <laughs> hat on and you'd be sitting in a corner and asking all I the questions. <laughs> wow. It would be so interesting. It would so be. interesting. And depending on how vulnerable she was prepared to be, it would be a very interesting conversation, I think. I think she'd be good at that. Yeah, I think she'd have a lot was, to um, say. I'm sure. I'm sure she's got. She would have um, would have had some stories to tell um, around. Oh, that wouldn't table. she just? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. As I thought, um, I knew this was going to be a great <laughs> conversation, um, and I really appreciate your time, Bonnie, like coming on and 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 sharing some tips and strategies, and hopefully, you know, some people. Um, that have been listening, which are either mums or dads or some people mm. that are still living in communities that are struggling with um, with flood recovery, they might be able to take something away from this. Um, you know, you're an absolute champ. And you. um, if um, and hopefully, if, you know, if there's people who want to reach out to you, is there any way we can do that? If it, Or it's pretty hard now that you're working within yeah. the school environment. We could work on it. We'll we could work, work on, on it. that. But, um, but you sure- know what I what – I- what I would say, because I just, I don't think I stressed it enough, was that mums and dads also, as the students do, mums and dads of today, you're up against it. It is really, really hard and you're doing a good job. You're doing oh. a great job. Well, I think that's a great way to finish. So thanks, Bonnie. I, think so. I appreciate your time. Thank and, um, you. Keep looking after yourself and, yeah, look forward to catching up <laughs> down the track. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on today's podcast and I appreciate any feedback and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Beyond the Back Paddock podcast.